The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. So I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And this evening, in our study of the Baptist acrostic, we come to the letter T, which completes the word. I don't want you to get too excited that we're going to be finished very quickly, because we won't uh, have several messages that are planned on this particular letter. And the T in the Baptist acrostic, that is the last T, stands for two offices, or two officers in the church. And these two officers are pastors and deacons. And for the next few weeks, we're going to take a look at these offices and the men that are qualified to fill them. And I'll tell you that some of the information is hard to teach, and that's because I have to talk a lot about me or about what I do. And you can imagine over these next few weeks, I'm going to try to make me look as good as I possibly can. And so you decide how that comes out at the end, whether I've done a good job of that. But as we've, we've studied this um, acrostic, we've learned that some of what we believe is not peculiar to Baptist churches. And we've also learned that there are some who don't believe that the acrostic is a good way for us to teach what Baptists believe. Now, you may remember at the beginning I told you that there are some complaints that the acrostic is not systematic and that it doesn't represent all that would be included to uh, for a church to have to call it itself a Baptist church. And I realize in that that there are far more doctrinal considerations uh, than just what we have in these doctrines that are represented by these different letters. And so what I've tried to do to diffuse those complaints is to go beyond the stated doctrines and to teach some of the implications of these doctrines, which will lead us, has led us down to many other paths of what we believe. For example, we've just finished up teaching about the S in the acrostic that stands for a saved church membership, and that led us into a discussion of regeneration and of justification by faith. We had to talk about baptismal regeneration and how that, that is a false doctrine that some people use to admit children into the church who cannot express personal faith, uh, repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, if we say that the first T stands for two ordinances, don't we also have to refute a sacramental scheme of salvation that really is also based upon justification by works rather than justification by faith? And we've talked about the B, which stands for biblical authority, but don't we also have to discuss how that the Bible is the only revelation that we have from God and that for all matters of faith and practice, we must refer to the scriptures. We have no authority but them. And so in each of the letters of the acrostic, we branch off into other doctrines that Baptists believe and teach. And whether they're systematic and flow from one doctrine to another is not really all that important, I don't think, not for our purposes. As long as we harness the randomness of it and put all the pieces of puzzle together to present the whole truth of what the Bible teaches, then I think that we do well. And so with each of the letters, we, we've gone beyond the stated doctrine to understand uh, them in, in broad statements and their implications. And so despite all the criticisms, I would just have to ask you, uh, 
do you feel that you haven't been helped by the study of the acrostic? Uh, or is it not a good thing for us to do? And I think that we would have to say, well, it's very good for us to learn these things. And hopefully um, you feel better or feel good about the fact that you are a Baptist and you understand these doctrines that we taught out of the Baptist acrostic. Then I'll also mention that one of the worst uh, criticisms that I found concerning the acrostic came from an article that was in the Baptist Bulletin, which is a publication of the General Association of Regular Baptists. And the author of this particular uh, article complained that there is no C in the Baptist acrostic. And he said, well, the C stands for congregational rule. And he's right. The Baptist church believes in congregational rule. But don't you remember that we discussed that very thing when we talked about uh, the, the church authority, the autonomy of the church? We talked about that. And then also uh, studying church membership in general, we talked about that. And we'll probably get into that subject again. But our subject tonight is the officers of the church. This is the same as the leadership of the church. And God has ordained that there would be two offices of leadership. But the church wasn't always restricted to those two offices. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us that God put apostles and prophets and evangelists in the church. And then it mentions pastors and teachers. And of those four categories, the only one of those that remains for the church today is the office of the pastor-teacher. And those of you that are in the fundamentals class, you may remember that we made some distinctions. We talked about... Uh, an evangelist, how that the office of evangelist or evangelists that we have today at least are not the same as the evangelists that were in the Bible. We don't really have an office of evangelist today. Not that there's anything wrong with using that term, but it's not the same as what we have in the Bible. The early church had that. We don't have it today. There are many different facets, uh, facets rather, to uh, leadership in the church, but before we speak of those, we do need to understand why God made offices of leadership. Leadership implies organization. Anything that's organized needs someone to operate it. It requires administration. Whether we're talking about government or corporations or civil entities, there has to be someone that ensures that the organization works does what it's supposed to do according to its intended purpose. For instance, it'd be very, very difficult for us to have a church service tonight if someone hadn't stepped forward and said, well, this is the way that we're going to do things. We have an order for the church. We, we set the order of the service for tonight. Someone has to oversee getting all the things ready that we need for the service. And each of you probably has an opinion how that might be done, but we can't run the church with 50 different opinions. And so at some point, somebody would step back and they say, why don't we appoint someone to take care of this? Why don't we put somebody in charge? And that's exactly what you have done. But the difference between what a corporation would do and putting something in charge and what you do is that we have the Holy Spirit to guide us into the people that are put, uh, for the people that are put into leadership. And there's a procedure for us to follow according to the Bible. And the Bible lists qualifications for the person who is in these offices. But choosing leaders is an instinctive response. In fact, God put that into every person's heart. In every area of society, we have this type of order. There is always a leader to follow. First is the recognition of God's authority. 
God set, set the order of leadership. He established order right down to the very way that your own home is run. In 1 Corinthians, we have the divine order. It says, but I would, uh, I would have you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, I just have to throw something a little bit political in here, if you'll permit me to. The head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man. The head of the woman is the man. Is the man. That's a very good reason why we should not have a woman president. Because the head of the woman is the man. That's God's order. You can try to upset that if you want, but what you do is you have upset order. So the world, the church, the home are spheres where God appoints leadership. It's necessary for proper function. And as I said, even down to the level of the way that your home operates, God has set the parameters of leadership. Now, as it concerns the church, God definitely structures leadership. The leader himself is not necessary for the existence of the church, but it is necessary for the church's best function. And, of course, the better the leader, the better the function. Christ began his church without earthly leadership. That came later. So the organization came first, next was the leadership. Now our question then about the T and the acrostic is what is that leadership? Of what is it composed? Who are these leaders? Well, the Bible and Baptist answer the question by saying that the leaders are only two offices. They're only Two categories for these, pastors and deacons. And the most important part of that statement is that the Bible says this. That's the authority. It's our only authority. Now, throughout the study, we've learned that there's one very important consideration for why the Baptist across it came into being. Uh, it's a way of defining the difference between us and others who call, who, are, who, who say they're Christians and call themselves churches. This is a way of defining a difference between us and them. But we've also noted this, that mainly the reason that we have the acrostic is because it shows the difference between us and Roman Catholicism. And that's because the Roman Catholic Church is the mother of nearly all inventions that oppose the biblical model of the church. Roman Catholicism uh, fostered, has fostered the worst perversions of doctrine for centuries, and those churches that came out of Roman Catholicism never fully rejected all the heresies. And so we as Baptists, as we look at every single letter in this Baptist acrostic, it stands opposed to Roman Catholic doctrine. Now, there's some other churches that take Baptist positions on some of these, but when you look at Roman Catholicism, they oppose every letter in this acrostic in toto. They're against every one of them. Well, we wouldn't need the acrostic, and we would never be known as Baptist if everyone had just stayed with the Bible from the very beginning. John Clark Ridpath, who was a great historian, said at the beginning, all Christians were Baptist. He wasn't a Baptist, but he recognized that the original Christians were the same in belief as Baptist. And, of course, that certainly begs the question of why he wasn't a Baptist. He was a Methodist. But nonetheless, he and other historians agree with this, that Baptists connect to the original church. And it was the perversion of these doctrines, primarily by Roman Catholics and then by harlot daughters of Protestantism, that gave us this acrostic. 
And this letter is no different from any of the others. We must state this, that there are only two offices in the church because Rome perverted this doctrine. The Roman church says that there are up to 12 orders of offices that are arranged in a hierarchy that pyramids at the top with the pope who holds the highest office. You search the scriptures with a fine-tooth comb, and you won't find anything about a pope in the Bible, and you won't find anything about the 11 different orders that descend from the pope. The Bible, which is the only authority, says all we have in the church are pastors and deacons. Now, since uh, Rome doesn't believe in biblical authority alone, they believe that they have the authority to change that. And so the New Testament practice was perverted, and they have this monstrosity of the hierarchy. And what happens when you change biblical requirements? First, you commit sin, and sin is corruption. And the result is that the Roman Catholic Church is the most corrupt organization on the face of this planet. But we'll leave that alone for now because we want to talk about what Baptists believe, what Baptists believe the Bible teaches. And you can just fairly leave Catholicism out of all discussions that have anything to do with the Bible because there's very precious little Bible that's in anything that they believe. They quote Scripture like the devil does. So what do we believe about leadership? Well, the doctrine states that there are two positions in the church, pastors and deacons. So first we're going to study the pastor, who is the chief officer of the church. And this is the office that raises the most questions. It's the perversion of the pastor's office that led to that order of the hierarchy of Roman Catholicism. Now, our text for this evening is 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. Uh, this will be our text for several weeks that outlines the... Uh, characteristics, qualifications of the pastor. But we're just going to deal with the first verse tonight, so we'll read it. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. If a man desire the office of a bishop. Now, in that first verse of qualifications, we already encounter problems. This argument begins right here in verse number 1. Is a bishop the same as a pastor? Well, let's look at that under our first heading tonight. What we want to talk about tonight is the terms that are used for the office. And there are three different terms that are used to describe the chief officer of the church. Many historians would, whose names you don't know, would probably you wouldn't recognize them. They agree with this following statement, that the chief officers in the New Testament church were called bishops or elders or pastors, these three names designate the same office and order of persons. Now, the appeal of that statement is to Acts chapter 20, in which Paul summoned the elders of the Ephesian church to meet him at Miletus. And Acts 20 verse 17 says, And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. Now, there you note that Paul called the elders of the church. And when they arrived, he instructed them with words written here in verse number 28 of Acts 20. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Now, the mention of flock in that verse implies there is a shepherd. Then overseer in the verse is the Greek word episkopos, which is the same word in 1 Timothy 3.1 that's translated as bishop. 
And so what we draw from this is that the New Testament shows that there are three words that describe the same office. All of them are the same person. And so then the question becomes, why are there three words? Why is it described with three designations for the same office? So that's what we want to look at. We want to look at those two terms, and, or three terms. What's the difference between these? Why do we have three? Well, the first one is the one that's most familiar to you. That's the term pastor, the pastor. Now, Acts 20.28 20, implies that there is a shepherd by using the word flock. A flock refers to sheep, and sheep have a shepherd that leads them. And in the New Testament, the Greek word for that is poimen, translated shepherd, 17 times in the Scriptures. But strangely enough, it's translated only one time as pastor, and that's in the plural form in Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 11. So it's somewhat strange that pastor is the word that stuck, that's the one that we use, rather than the many more times that the word is, tra is translated as shepherd. So it would be perfectly correct if you were to address me as Shepherd Smith. Or out on the sign outside where it says Brian Baptist Church, and under that's my name, Shepherd V. Mark Smith. But we don't use shepherd. That's not the term we use. Many, many people don't even realize that pastor doesn't mean anything other than shepherd. And it would probably help our understanding quite a bit if more people realize that's the meaning of it. Now, I, I know that you know this, but... Uh, I, I hope you understand that pastor, the reason that the pastor is called a shepherd is because he represents the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ is the great shepherd of the sheep. Most of the time, shepherd in the New Testament refers to Christ. For example, Hebrews 13, verse 20, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect. And every good work to do His will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, verse number 20, if we read that, we could read it this way. The great poiman of the sheep, or the great pastor of the sheep. So you go back to Ephesians 4, verse 11, and there you see that the pastor of the church is a shepherd who stands in the place of Christ to feed his sheep. And since Jesus is known as the chief shepherd, the great shepherd, we often refer to the pastor as the under-shepherd of Christ. Well, pastor then is the term that stuck. This is the one that we use the most often. And the reason that we do is because pastor represents the most intimate of these three terms. It speaks of a, of a personal relationship that the pastor has to the people. That the pastor is the one who nurtures the sheep. He's the one who feeds them. He's the caregiver of the sheep. He's the protector of the sheep. And so the sheep come to depend upon the pastor. The pastor, of course, nurtures the sheep in a spiritual way. He feeds them the food of the Word of God. He's responsible for their spiritual growth. And so he helps the sheep develop and to become stronger. And that's the way that the pastor relates to the sheep on a personal re uh, level. And because that nurturing is so vital to the life of a Christian, there's a strong bond that's developed between the pastor and the people. It's a very special bond that exists between the two. But I admit that all pastors aren't that way because sometimes pastors are unapproachable. Sometimes they lock themselves behind an office door. And if you want to see the pastor on a 
on a special level, it may take you three weeks of planning appointments to get into the office, and then when you get there, it's often an intimidating thing to speak to him. Now, I try not to be that way. Uh, I'm not really a, a scary person to talk to. I mean, it really surprises me sometimes when parents bring their children in and they say, they're just scared of you. They're afraid to talk to you. I've only got a few severed heads in my office, uh, in the closet, just a few. And sometimes parents are that way. I've even had parents that come into the office, they say the same thing. They say, I'm just so nervous to talk to you. I'm just nervous. Only a few of you need to be nervous when you talk to me. I, I am the least intimidating person in the world. And I know that some of you gun nuts, you'd be shooting people that I have to deal with. So I'm not an intimidating person. You, when you come to my office, you have at least an 85% chance of surviving the encounter. So it's not, you know, the odds are high for you. But as a pastor, I do want to be accessible. I want to be open. I want to be friendly with you. I want to be a shepherd who shows you that I care about the sheep. Now, I know that there's some people who say, well, the pastor, the, the way that he shows that he cares about the sheep is, if he cares about me, then he'll be at my beck and call 24 hours a day. That's not really the way that the pastor shows the deepest concern and care for the sheep. His deepest concern is by the way that he feeds them. Does he feed them the Word of God? That's the chief way that the shepherd shows that he cares for God's people. Now, a the pastor who won't feed the sheep is not a caring pastor. A pastor who says, well, you know, these, these sheep are dumb. These sheep are dumb, and I don't want to teach them doctrine because that's just too hard for them. And so let's just teach them about loving Jesus and being good and being kind, and they'll be fine. No, they won't be fine. They won't be fine. They'll be weak and sickly. They won't be able to stand, and they'll stay that way. They'll be sheep with rickets because... They haven't been exposed to the nourishment of the Word of God. You know, nobody would say that a parent who feeds a 10-year-old child milk every day, and that's all he ever gives them, you're not going to say that that parent's a, a good parent. No, that parent is guilty of abuse, isn't he? And I think there are many pastors that are guilty of spiritual abuse because they don't feed the sheep. They never touch doctrine. And so nobody in the church knows anything. And the strange thing about that is you'll go to some of these churches and the people think they're just really stellar Christians. They're way above everybody else. They know so much. But they, all they've ever had to compare what they know to is the milk that they've been fed. So is it whole milk or is it soy milk? One or the other. They, they don't really get anything substantial. Now a pastor who loves the people feeds them. But he's also stern with them. He knows that sin will destroy them. And so when necessary, he'll put the hammer down on sin. He's not going to let you buy with your sin, and he'll just keep reminding you and reminding you and reminding you of it until you get it right. And so he's not done his duty to care for the sheep to protect the flock until he's taught them the whole counsel of the Word of God. This is because the pastor represents Christ. He's a shepherd. Paul told these pastors that came from Ephesus, feed the church of God, which he had purchased with his own blood. And that's what a good pastor realizes. He realizes how precious the sheep are to the good shepherd. And so he's not going to fail to do his very best to treat them the way Christ would treat them, with gentleness and compassion, and yet with sternness and with strong teaching from the Word. You know, I've often wondered about this. 
uh, as far as being caring and compassion about his disciples, I've always wondered, how is it that Jesus just didn't get totally whacked out at his disciples? I mean, some of the things they did, why didn't he just call them blockheads? But he didn't. And you know why he didn't? Because they were sheep. And he knew that sheep are prone to wonder. Sheep are prone to go astray. You have to be gentle with the sheep. You have to lead the sheep. They have to be corralled sometimes. They have to be brought in because they'll hurt themselves. They don't know how to protect themselves. So a good pastor knows that. He wants to lead the people with the Word of God. He knows, he knows the way to go. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, he helps the sheep mature. So pastor, that's become the most popular term that we have. It's because that whole idea of shepherd... The shepherd who cares for his sheep. And that comes directly from the references that we have of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He's the great shepherd, the good shepherd, who cares for his sheep. Now, the second term that we have in Scripture is the term elder. Pastor is the term of endearment, while elder is a term of respect. Now, elder's not a different man. It's just a different viewpoint of the man. Now, you're close to the shepherd. Hopefully, you love the shepherd, and uh, he can be friendly with you and you with him. But at the same time, you have to have a very healthy respect for the office. Now, while you can be friendly, you can't push a friendship to the point of familiarity in such a degree that you disregard or disrespect the man in his office. Now, in the Old Testament, the term elder was, is, is often used. Uh, it referred to those many times that are just older, but not just to the fact that they were old, but because they were older and wiser. And in that regard, the, the elders afforded respect. Now, I'd like you to turn, if you would, to the book of Job for just a moment, where we can see this principle perfectly demonstrated. If you'll go to Job chapter 22, or 32 rather, uh, you know the story about Job and how that God tested him. And there were some terrible things that happened to him. Job was a very prominent, rich man, and God let Satan afflict him. And you remember that Job had some friends. And these friends came to Job to comfort him. But that friendship was not all that great because Job said to his friends, you are miserable comforters. Well, there are three of these old, wise, pseudo-comforters. They're Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And each of them makes several speeches uh, to Job throughout the course of the book. And then there's this other one, and his name is Elihu. Elihu was younger than the other men. And so he sat through all these speeches by Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and he also listened to Job as he spoke. Now, read what happens here in Job 32, verse 4. Now, Elihu had waited till Job had spoken because they were elder than he. When Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, then his wrath was kindled. And Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite, answered and said, I am young, and ye are very old. Wherefore, I was afraid, and durst not show you mine opinion. I said, days should speak, and multitude of years should teach wisdom. Now, what we see Elihu doing here is showing respect for his elders. He wasn't going to speak until they were finished speaking. To do so would have been to show great respect for them. And if he spoke out of his proper turn, if he hadn't waited, 
then everything that he said would have been disregarded. Nobody would have paid attention to what he said. It would be just like he didn't speak. Now, I think that that's something that we need to teach our young people today. We need to teach them respect. Young people don't mind interrupting conversations with adults because they haven't been taught to show respect. Now, respect for elders carries on over into the New Testament. Age still has something to do with it, but in the New Testament, it's more of a respect of wisdom and respect for the man's office. And so in that regard, Paul could talk to a very young man, a man like Timothy, like we have here in, in 1 Timothy. He could talk to a young man and say, well, here, here's a man that demands respect. He's an elder. He's a pastor of God's people. So he deserves respect for that office. Now, if you ha still have 1 Timothy open, you can look at chapter 5, verse 17. And here Paul says to him, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in word and doctrine. And then over in Hebrews 13, verse 7, it says, Remember them which have the rule over you, and have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Those are, those are scriptures that convey respect. Now, they don't mean that an elder lords it, over God's people, that he's a lording dictator over the church, not that people should worship at his feet, but it does mean that you look at this office with the highest regard, that God has called the man that he put to pastor you, called that elder and put him into the pulpit, and, and that, that office that he has, the appointment of God, requires the greatest amount of respect for what he does. This is an appointment by the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Now, at times, you may... Hear pastors say some things like, well, I would rather pastor a church than I would to be president of the United States. I'm not sure that this year I wouldn't rather be president of the United States because we need somebody to straighten the country out and save this country from the insane choices that we have in two days. But aside from the anomaly that we have this year, a pastor would rather be a pastor than to be the president of the United States. And that's because we feel that our job is more important than his. Now, what a president can do, he may be able to save your body from a nuclear explosion, but he can't save your soul from hell. The soul has to do with eternity. The president deals with temporal matters. So the pastor has a much greater obligation to deal with very serious issues. So then we have this second term for the office to show that the man in the office deserves the utmost respect, that you can get close to him as the pastor, shepherd, and friend, but... You can't let the familiarity that you have with him degrade the office. Now, let me elaborate on that for just a minute. Yes, the pastor, and I as a pastor, I do want to be close to you. I want to be your friend. I couldn't think of anything worse than being a pastor that people don't care to have anything to do with. I mean, I don't want to be a pastor that the youth leader wouldn't invite to a Giants ball game with the young people. I mean, I wouldn't want that to happen to me. But at the same time... Tabor, at the same time, at the same time, one of the toughest things for a pastor to do is to have friends and then have to discipline them. Sometimes you have to forcefully preach because your friends have done something they ought not to do. Now, a pastor likes to get up close, but many don't for this very reason because there may come a day 
when you have to discipline friends. And so you do have those pastors that lock themselves behind the door. And when they do, what they do is they exalt elder and they shortchange pastor. So you can't do that. You've got to strike a balance in these two things. And if you're that kind of pastor, the one that wants to lock himself away, that has nothing to do with the people, then they're not going to miss you when you leave. They're not going to care if you're gone. The pastor can change hands. Nobody cares. You end up being a picture in the middle of your hall out there that nobody knows anything about. But if a pastor is a friend, he sometimes has to deal with friends. And I can tell you that as an elder of the church, I can't be partial to your sins. I can't overlook your sins because of personal relationships. I'm not a friend who cares for your soul if I do it. So respect this that I must do my job. I must do my job. And don't be unhappy if I have to call you out on your sin. So these are two views of the same office, the pastor, shepherd, and the respected elder. Now, thirdly, Acts 20, 28, 1 Timothy 3, give us another aspect of the same office, and that is the bishop. The bishop is the same man. And this is the term that really, this is the one that really gets mixed up. This is the term that the prelatical church loves to use. And out of this, they've drawn the, uh, developed the hierarchy of a church. So what is the bishop? Well, the word does come, as I mentioned a, a moment ago, from the Greek word episkopos, which is the same word from which we get episcopal. episcopal. It basically means overseer, and it's translated that way in Acts 20, 28. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost have made you overseers, or which the Holy Ghost has made you bishops. Now, since this word means overseers, the prelatical church uh, thinks that it means a man who oversees many churches. And in the first churches, uh, first century, there were some men that did have the oversight of many churches. You know who they were? They were apostles. The apostles had the oversight of many churches. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the apostle Paul uh, talked about all the trials that he experienced. He spoke of uh, beatings and shipwrecks and stonings and all of those things, all the perils that he went through. And then he added something to that. And he said, besides all those things, he said, the care of all the churches. He says this in 2 Corinthians 11:28. Besides those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. So he, he was talking about all the hardships that he went through. And one of those is he had so many churches he had to care for. And that's because Paul was the bishop of many churches. He can have that job. I have one church. That's enough for me. I've got enough to do here. But many churches were under the authority of an apostle. And this is because the church was in the early stages of development. Now, when a person became a pastor in the first century, he wasn't handed the manual that had all the things in it that he needed to know. That's because the New Testament was still being written. He had Old Testament, but Old Testament says nothing about the church. And so New Testament doctrines of the church were being developed, and the Apostle Paul wrote those things. It took time to write all of those things. And as he did, he's instructing all of the churches, and he has authority over all of them. But the apostolic office was for that time. It's not for ours. There came a time when the word of God was completed. And so now the pastor has the manual. Now he takes that and he uses that. That's the direction for the church. And we don't need somebody to rule over many of the churches. We just need to rule over one. And many historians agree that the bishop in the New Testament 
was a man that just had control or oversight of one church. And what happened is, or what does happen, is that when you have, you continue this and you have men that accumulate churches and power over churches, everybody knows that power corrupts. And that's what happened. Now you have a corrupt system. That's Roman Catholicism. I mean, who, who would argue that the papacy is not wildly corrupt? Now, in the context of this scripture, of our scripture in, in Acts 20, we read a moment ago, the bishops were for one church. Both First Timothy and Titus mentioned bishops. And as I said, good church historians agree that the bishop was nothing different than the pastor of one church. A bishop, then, is a third look at the same man. You have the pastor, the elder, and you have the bishop. And thus, we have a three-dimensional view of the same office. But what does the bishop mean? What, what is it, why do we need that, that terminology? Well, this refers to the administration of the church. The pastor is an administrator. The bishop is an administrator. And it speaks of the one who governs the many affairs of the church, that he has oversight of the entire ministry. The bishop is ultimately responsible for what the church does. The Bible says that he's going to give an account to God for how he guided the church through the many issues that we face. A pastor is much more than a preacher. I wish that that's all that we had to do was just preach the word. That's the preferable thing to do. That's the primary thing that we do. But a bishop also has to oversee all of the ministry functions. So he's responsible for it all. But the, the good thing about this is, is that a pastor should seek wise counsel. Now, we'll talk about deacons later, but that's who I rely on much of the time is deacons to give wise counsel. And what a pastor needs to be able to do is to delegate as Moses delegated. He has to have enough sense to understand this. It's good to surrender some of the authority so you can devote yourself to preaching. But there are many pastors, especially in fundamental churches, that refuse to take their thumb off everything. But a bishop is permitted to do this. He can give up duties to others in the church. Ultimately, though, he still has to remember he's responsible for what everybody does. The buck stops at the pastor's desk. So all of this, then, is to show that we look at the office of leadership from these three different angles. There's the feeding, the nurturing, the teaching aspect of it. There's the, the closeness that the pastor has. Then there's the respect. That's the elder. The respect for the high calling of the office. And then there's the bishop, and that's all about oversight of the entire ministry. So it's not three offices that we're talking about, not three officers we're speaking about, not ten, not twelve, not five, not six. There's only the pastor and deacons. That's all that we have. And the pastor is one man with three different aspects of the office. Now, it's seven o'clock, so we'll stop at that point. We're not in a big hurry to get through with this, so we'll pick up here the next time. And the next time, I hope, will be maybe more interesting to you. We're going to talk about how does the church get a pastor? Is that a boardroom decision? Or is there more involved in that? We'll talk about more about that next week. Now, before I, before I finish here tonight, just to get into a different, different topic for just a moment, um, this has nothing at all to do with this message, but it has to do with our message next Sunday morning. Next Sunday morning, I'm going to finish uh, this little series that we have on the Sabbath day. And if you have unsaved friends and you want them to hear a gospel message and you, and you want to hear, uh, have them to understand why Sunday is such an important day for Christians, the next message is going to deal what was that Sabbath day to represent? 
What does it all speak about? What is the most important thing that comes out of the Sabbath day? And we learn it by connecting Old Testament to New Testament. And out of that comes a beautiful gospel message of what Christ has done for us. And that's what the Sabbath points itself to, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you have unsaved friends, next week is a good time uh, to bring them to church because they'll hear some gospel in the message. Not that they don't at other times, but specifically what, how important that uh, the Sabbath day is about uh, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I hope you'll remember that for next Sunday morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the time we've looked in your word tonight. And Lord, uh, what we're examining here is just the way that things work, day-to-day operations, things that you've given in the Word of God. Maybe they are not exciting things, but they are things that must be taught because the Word tells us to teach them. And it's put here for our learning, for our, uh, for our growth in, in the Word, to, to understand these things in a better way. So Lord, just help us to look at these things in that way. And Uh, We thank you for the word that we have to preach. And we give you the praise for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.